Welcome to the Publisher's Podcast, your place for psychiatry sound bites. Hi, I'm John Shelton, publisher of the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry. In the next 30 minutes or so, I'll bring you up to date on selections from important peer-reviewed research and reviews from our January 2013 issue. Note that you will hear a transition tone between summaries. Let's get started. Psychotic disorders are serious mental illnesses that have severe adverse consequences for patients and usually require vigorous treatment. Atypical antipsychotic drugs are approved by the FDA primarily for schizophrenia and bipolar disorder, yet they are commonly used off-label for other psychotic disorders. Longer-term safety and effectiveness data are lacking for the use of atypical antipsychotics in older patients who typically have more medical diseases. This report is from a two-year study of four frequently used atypical antipsychotics, aripipazole, olanzapine, quetiapine, and risperidone, in 332 patients over the age of 40 who had psychotic symptoms associated with schizophrenia, mood disorders, PTSD, or dementia. The study design included randomization, yet it allowed the treating psychiatrist to exclude one or two of the study drugs on the basis of past experience or likely side effects, to adjust doses as appropriate, and to stop medication if indicated. One half of the patients remained on the assigned drug less than six months. For those who continued, there was no significant improvement in psychosis across a six-month period. Within a year, 37% of the patients developed metabolic syndrome, which increases the risk of diabetes, obesity, hypertension, and heart disease. Within two years, 24% developed serious adverse events, including death, hospitalizations, and emergency room visits for life-threatening conditions. The authors conclude that considerable caution is warranted with the use of atypical antipsychotics in older persons. They note that psychosocial treatment should be used whenever appropriate. When atypical antipsychotics are needed, they should be used at low doses and for short periods, and patients should be monitored for side effects. Detailed discussion with patients and their caregivers about the risks and benefits of atypical antipsychotics and about possible treatment alternatives is recommended. With this month's journal, we published the first in a very special series of CME-certified commentaries that will focus on restoring the mental well-being of veterans. These offerings are the result of a unique collaboration between our company and the Aspen Institute. Many returning veterans seek health care in the private sector, where their military background may go undetected. Veterans who were exposed to terrifying events can develop PTSD and other mental health disorders that can hinder their return to civilian life and disrupt their relationships with family and friends. To discuss the topic of providing comprehensive mental and medical health care to returning veterans, Dr. Terence Keene assembled a group of experts in medicine and government. 
They also discussed improving the transition from active duty to veteran life and involving family members, peers, employers, and communities in supporting our veterans. In this commentary, practitioners can learn how to improve their veteran patients' mental health care and find out about resources available to veterans and their families. In recent years, studies on depression have investigated whether an association exists between depression and an increased incidence of type 2 diabetes. These investigations have produced mixed results, however. In an attempt to settle this point, the authors performed a meta-analysis of all available evidence, including all published studies assessing the risk of incident diabetes in subjects with or without clinical depression. They retrieved 22 studies that enrolled more than 400,000 subjects, had a mean follow-up period of eight years, and included about 20,000 cases of incident diabetes. When the results were combined, the incidence of diabetes was shown to be increased by 56% in subjects with depression. This association retained statistical significance after adjustment was made for confounders. Both untreated depression and depression treated with antidepressants were similarly associated with incident diabetes, suggesting that the association cannot be explained by the effect of antidepressants. The mechanisms underlying this association are far from being fully understood. The authors conclude that the results should be interpreted with caution because of the methodological difficulties that arise in the assessment of depression and the diagnosis of incident diabetes in large epidemiologic studies. They emphasize the importance of recognizing that there is no evidence that treatment of depression is capable of reducing the risk of diabetes. On the other hand, they believe that depression should be considered a risk marker for diabetes and that screening for diabetes should be intensified in patients with depression. Olofsson and colleagues investigated trends and patterns in stimulant treatment of adults visiting office-based medical practices in the United States. The investigators performed a time series analysis of data from more than 370,000 respondents to the National Ambulatory Medical Care Survey conducted from 1994 to 2009. The analysis focused on visits by adults during which stimulant medications were prescribed. Researchers found that the proportion of adult visits that involved a stimulant such as methylphenidate or an amphetamine increased from 0.1% in the years 1994 to 1997 to 0.7% in the years 2006 to 2009. Over this period, the increase in stimulant treatment was especially rapid among young adults. This trend is important because younger adults, particularly those 18 to 25 years of age, are at risk for misrepresenting symptoms to physicians and using stimulants for non-medical purposes. 
The increase in stimulant treatment of adults also occurred especially quickly among patients of primary care physicians and other non-psychiatric physicians. As a result, most adult doctor visits involving stimulants are now provided by non-psychiatric physicians. Furthermore, mental disorders are diagnosed in only about one-half of adult visits to non-psychiatrists that involve prescription of stimulants. The increase in this practice is an area of potential concern. The authors conclude that educational efforts may be needed, including dissemination of practical clinical information and tools to help physicians evaluate and document the specific conditions for which they prescribe stimulants to adults and to ensure that they maintain clinical vigilance regarding the risk of non-medical stimulant use. This research was funded by the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality, the National Institute on Drug Abuse, the National Institute of Mental Health, and the New York State Psychiatric Institute. Clinical trials in major depression often judge outcomes using remission at a single endpoint, but of greater clinical relevance would be a state of sustained remission, that is, persistence of low symptom severity continuously at multiple evaluations prior to the final evaluation. Biomarkers that could predict sustained remission might enable changes in treatment planning by allowing patients to avoid a series of prolonged treatment trials with a low probability of remission. In the multi-site BRIGHT-MD trial, short for Biomarkers for Rapid Identification of Treatment Effectiveness in Major Depression, Adults with unipolar major depression participated in an evaluation of a novel predictive biomarker. This biomarker, called the Antidepressant Treatment Response Index, or ATR index, is based on measurement of brain electrical activity prior to treatment and again after one week of medication. Previous research found the ATR to be a stronger predictor of acute remission than symptom measures, serum drug level, genotype, or clinical judgment. The current article reports on an analysis of 67 subjects who received escitalopram for 13 weeks. The study results showed that high ATR values at the start of treatment were significantly predictive of individuals who would achieve sustained remission. Furthermore, high ATR values predicted faster entry into sustained remission. The authors conclude that while additional replication is needed, these findings support the possibility of guiding antidepressant treatment choices with biomarkers that can be measured in outpatient physician offices. Funding for the BRIGHT-MD trial was provided by Aspect Medical Systems, a division of Covidin. Suicide is the main cause of premature death among individuals with psychotic disorders. Clinicians are concerned about detecting suicide risk and preventing suicide attempts, particularly in children and adolescents. The risk of suicide attempt among psychotic patients is especially high during the early stages of the disorder.
Yet very few studies have investigated this issue in early-onset, first-episode psychosis, and no study to date has employed a follow-up design. To remedy this situation, investigators designed a study in which 110 adolescent patients in their first episode of psychosis were assessed at baseline and at 12 and 24 months with a battery of clinical instruments, including measures of suicidal behavior. The instruments allowed the investigators to determine suicide risk level at each assessment. They found that patients with a high risk of suicide were more likely to have severe depressive symptoms, to have a history of suicide attempt, and to be treated with antidepressants. Suicide attempts were more frequent in the first year following psychosis onset and being classified at baseline as having a high risk of suicide was the best predictor of suicide attempt during follow-up. The authors encourage clinicians to systematically check for factors associated with suicide attempt so as to detect and treat individuals at high risk of suicide as early as possible and to monitor them closely during follow-up. Insufficient sleep and sleep disturbances during adolescence can cause multiple physical, cognitive, and mental health problems. Sleep changes and sleep problems in adolescence can result from a number of biological and psychosocial factors. To examine the impact of natural disasters on adolescent sleep, Dr. Fan and colleagues at South China Normal University followed up 1,573 adolescent survivors of the major earthquake that struck Sichuan province of China in 2008. Over 69,000 people were killed in this disaster, and 4.8 million were left homeless. The investigators assessed self-reported sleep problems and mental health concerns at 12, 18, 24, and 30 months after the earthquake. Up to 30% of the adolescent survivors had sleep disturbances at the initial assessment that persisted for up to 30 months. In contrast, only 15% of the general Chinese adolescent population experience sleep disturbances. In addition, about half of the survivors slept less than seven hours per night. Depression, anxiety, poor social support, and negative life events were associated with increased risk and persistence of sleep problems. Longitudinal analysis demonstrated that sleep problems may cause mental disorders and vice versa. The findings highlight the importance of early detection of sleep problems to reduce the impact of natural disasters on mental health and well-being in adolescent survivors. Jeffrey Hunt and colleagues, in a study funded by the National Institute of Mental Health, wanted to assess whether relative severity of irritability versus elation in mania is stable and predicts subsequent illness course in youth with bipolar I or II disorder or bipolar disorder not otherwise specified. Using the Kitty Schedule for Affective Disorders and Schizophrenia, the investigators assessed the most severe lifetime manic episode for each subject in a cohort of bipolar youth aged 7 to 17 years. 
The youth were then categorized as irritable only, elated only, or both irritable and elated, and all were followed prospectively. The stability of the initial categorization was the primary outcome. Other comparisons were made between the baseline groups over four years of follow-up, including the course of mood symptoms and episodes, the risk of suicide attempt, and levels of functioning. Most subjects experience both irritability and elation during follow-up, and agreement between baseline and follow-up group assignments did not exceed that expected by chance. Elated-only subjects were most likely to report the absence of both irritability and elation at every follow-up assessment. Baseline groups experienced mania or hypomania for a similar proportion of the follow-up period, but irritable-only subjects experienced depression for a greater proportion of follow-up than did those who were both irritable and elated at baseline. Groups did not otherwise differ in course of mood, episode, polarity, bipolar diagnostic type, suicide attempt risk, or functional impairment. The authors emphasized that most bipolar youth eventually experienced both irritability and elation, irrespective of history, and that youth who were irritable only at baseline were at similar risk as the other groups for mania, but at greater risk for depression. Bipolar disorder is a recurring illness complicated by high comorbidity and risk of poor health outcomes. In addition to lithium, valproic acid, and carbamazepine for treatment of bipolar disorder, the FDA has approved most of the second-generation antipsychotics. Recent treatment guidelines recommend several second-generation antipsychotic agents for use as first-line monotherapy, including olanzapine, quetiapine, and risperidone. However, the safety of antipsychotic drugs used in bipolar disorder could be underestimated, including the risk of pneumonia. An emerging body of literature shows that antipsychotics are associated with risk of pneumonia in the elderly and in patients with schizophrenia. Investigators used a nationwide medical insurance claims data set in Taiwan to explore the associations between antipsychotic agents, mood stabilizers, and the risk of pneumonia. Their research was funded by the National Science Council and Taipei City Hospital. The findings showed that several antipsychotic agents were associated with dose-dependent increases in the risk of pneumonia, including olanzapine, clozapine, and haloperidol. Interestingly, lithium had a dose-dependent protective effect for pneumonia. Valproic acid showed no association with risk for pneumonia. Some of the combination therapies resulted in a synergy of risk, particularly olanzapine plus carbamazepine and clozapine plus valproic acid. The authors conclude that clinicians should be aware that certain second-generation antipsychotics recommended for first-line monotherapy for bipolar disorder are associated with a risk of pneumonia. Since lithium has a protective effect against pneumonia and valproic acid shows no risk, the authors conclude both drugs should be used as first-line treatments for bipolar disorder. Pharmacotherapy for attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, mainly with stimulants, is the cornerstone of treatment for this disorder. 
However, patients often drop out of treatment very early, and long-term outcome has been questioned. With this naturalistic four-year follow-up study of a large sample of adults with ADHD, a group of Norwegian researchers wanted to investigate, one, the current use of pharmacologic treatment for ADHD, two, symptom load and overall mental health functioning in patients, three, the effect that duration of treatment has on outcome, and four, predictors of outcome. 368 adult subjects with DSM-4 ADHD were included in the study. Their mean age was 36.5 years. Among the participants, 63% reported current pharmacologic treatment mainly with methylphenidate. These subjects reported better control of ADHD symptoms than those who had stopped treatment. Those taking medication for ADHD also reported better mental health functioning, but the difference was not statistically significant. Among participants who had stopped treatment, those who had been treated for more than two years reported significantly lower ADHD symptomatology and better mental health functioning compared to those who had been treated for two years or less. The investigators found that comorbidity at baseline predicted outcome, a finding that is consistent with earlier studies. The study received financial support from the Norwegian Directorate of Health. Recent findings indicate that a substantial proportion of individuals diagnosed with substance-induced psychosis develop persistent psychotic conditions in the long run. Investigators from Finland aim to determine the proportion of patients with substance-induced psychosis who would subsequently be diagnosed with schizophrenia and to ascertain the length of follow-up needed to catch the majority of these patients. Additionally, they looked for possible related factors behind these phenomena in the belief that the discovery of this information would be beneficial for clinicians trying to help patients affected by psychosis. The investigation was funded by the Finnish Psychiatric Association, the Finnish Society of Addiction Medicine, and the Academy of Finland. The retrospective nationwide register-based study spanned eight years and followed over 18,000 patients after their first admission with a diagnosis of substance-induced psychosis. The cumulative probability of diagnostic conversion to a schizophrenia spectrum disorder was highest at 46% among individuals who had cannabis-induced psychosis at their first admission. The cumulative probability for conversion of amphetamine-induced psychosis was 30%, for hallucinogens, 24%, for opioids, 21%, and for alcohol, 5%. The authors conclude that more emphasis should be placed on provision of clinical follow-up for those who have been treated for substance-induced psychosis. They suggest also that it might be worthwhile to actively offer an early integrated intervention for all those affected by substance-induced psychosis. In this month's Practical Psychopharmacology column, Dr. Andrade describes the interactions that can occur between beta blockers and antidepressants. Certain combinations of these drugs can raise blood levels of the beta blocker, 
which may cause clinically significant cardiac issues in vulnerable individuals. Dr. Andrade discusses practical clinical strategies for managing these patients. This month, we feature a position paper by the National Network of Depression Centers on Electroconvulsive Therapy Device Classification. This consortium of major academic centers believes that there is an important public health need for ECT to remain available for clinical use. ECT devices are regulated by the FDA, which is presently involved in formulating a proposed rule on how such devices should be classified. The consortium's review of information provided by the FDA and its advisory panel indicates that the FDA may have substantially underestimated the efficacy of ECT and that this underestimation may negatively affect reclassification of ECT devices to a less restrictive category. Be sure to read their important review and recommendations. In closing, join us online for book reviews, interactive activities from our CME Institute, and much, much more from the January issue of the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry. Thanks for listening. This is John Shelton signing off. I hope you will join me next month for the Publishers Podcast, your place for psychiatry soundbites.